Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Over the past few weeks, uh, we've been in a series called Light and Love, uh, in which we've been studying this powerful little book of 1 John. Uh, as a reminder, 1 John was written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, and these three letters, uh, tucked in the back of your New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are written uh, to house churches that John is overseeing. Uh, and he's writing to address the problem of what he calls the Antichrists. Uh, That is, that there are those who are denying that Jesus is the Messiah, who have left the church, and who are causing all kinds of stir and trouble uh, in those local communities. Uh, And what's fascinating is, though, even though, and this is true not just for this passage of Scripture, but for all of Scripture, is that even though the author, John, is writing to a particular context, to a particular audience, for a particular reason, uh, we still find that it is valuable and informative and formative Uh, for us in our lives, and it gives us rich theological truth to help us today. Uh, And so in the first week, what we did is we learned that we are invited to participate in the divine life of God in community with others. Uh, That the vocation of faith is not meant to be, nor can it be, according to John, lived out in isolation. Uh, this is not just a me and Jesus thing, a me and God thing. It is, uh, is as much as I am in relationship with God, that necessitates being in relationship with other people. That, that the fellowship of faith cannot be practiced on our own. Now, of course, the word that he uses for this is the word koinonia, uh, which is not just fellowship like potlucks, but it is, in fact, participation. Uh, and we, we learned that this is a lot like a dance, uh, that we are invited to dance with others in the divine life of God. And you all have seen me dance enough that I will refuse that this morning. So uh, in week two, we explored one of John's central statements about, uh, in the book, uh, which is this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And what we discovered is that we are encouraged then to walk in the light by obeying the commands of God and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Th- that is to say that loving one another is a training ground for learning to love others. Learning, loving one another is a training ground for learning to love others who are maybe not like us. Uh, and I want to add, to you know, oftentimes a preacher, uh, I, I often say this, uh, a sermon is never finished, it's only delivered, uh, right? So a lot of times after I deliver a sermon, I'll go back and say, you know what, I should have said this, and I maybe should not have said that, um, and different things. Here's what I should have said in, in week two, uh, so I want to add it now. Uh, I would say this, the church will have no credibility in the world if we can't learn to love one another. The church will have no credibility in the world if we can't learn to love one another. Uh, in week three, then, we looked at uh, these loaded phrases of last hour and antichrist, and it was all doom and gloom. There was no hope to be found in all of it. Uh, just kidding. Uh, What we discovered is that John believes firmly that they were living at the end of the age of darkness and the dawn of the age of light. Uh, That that's precisely what he means by living in the last hour. And in fact, that what was true for him is exactly true for us, that we are living the overlap of the ages where God's kingdom is here. And so we look at the world and we see beauty and forgiveness and peace. And yet, the age of darkness is still hanging around, the age of evil, so we still see violence and hatred and evil all around. 
What our role then is as God's people is to bear witness to this new age, this age of light, the age to come. And this is, all, this is also the week that we learned uh, to throw out any system of end-time belief that hinges on the coming of a single personality known as the Antichrist uh, or belief in the rapture. Those things often go together. If any kind of system of belief hinges on those things, we just need to throw it out because John uses the term Antichrist simply to refer to anyone who rejects Jesus as the Messiah and goes against the ways of Christ. And so we shared this good news. There's not just one Antichrist. There are millions. <laughs> uh, but... The real hope is that the age of light is dawning and the age of darkness is passing away. Uh, And then then last week for Family Sunday, uh, Grace did a great job preaching and she reminded us of this. And this was uh, the repeating phrase. I hope you caught on to it last week. She said over and over again, she reminded us that for Christians, love is not an option because God is love. For Christians, love is not an option because God is love. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at John's conclusion to the letter. Uh, But we have one more week in the series, and so next week uh, we're going to conclude our Light and Love series uh, with a little surprise uh, that I think will be a lot of fun. So, And that's the only hint I'm going to give you. Uh, But let's, uh, let's read together. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 8, and when I say read together, I mean maybe listen as I read. <laughs> um, let's look at John uh, chapter 5, beginning with verse 18, uh, reading through the end of the book. It says this, uh, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. but The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. And we know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. That's John's admission that this age of darkness is not yet past, but is still hanging around. And then verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is truth. And we are in Him who is truth by being in His Son, Jesus Christ, for He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And you think that he's going to launch into this whole new section, but it just ends. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Verse 20 is uh, rather confusing, isn't it? Uh, Verse 20 says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so if we begin to try to unpack this sentence, it is the Son of God who came to point us to the one who is true. And then we are in him, the one who is true, by being in his Son. And he is true God and eternal life. (sighs) Say what? It's not immediately clear, and so the the questions that come up is, who is the one who is true? Who is the one who is eternal life? Is it God, or is it Jesus? It has to be one or the other. And the answer is this, that for John, the answer to the question, is it God, or is it Jesus? The answer for John is yes. Uh, That is to say that for John, he knows no God apart from Jesus Christ. 
That for John, he knows no God apart from Jesus Christ. Uh, That is to say that when the apostles encountered Jesus, they believed and felt very strongly that they were encountering the embodiment of God who is light and who is love. God is love, John has stated. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, John has said. These two things have centered this entire book. God is light and God is love. And ultimately, what he wants us to to bring us to in verse 20 is the understanding that the embodiment of that very light and the embodiment of that very love is found in Jesus Christ. That for John, there 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 is no way you can know a God apart from the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? So... Then his final words are, keep away from idols. And this really seems odd, particularly given that he does like a welcoming address. Dear children, it's almost like he's going to open up a whole new section. He's going to keep writing. He's got a lot more to say. But instead, he gives this welcoming phrase, dear children, but then he gives a closing phrase. It is the climax of his argument. It is the final thing to say. After he says that, he drops the mic and walks away. (laughs) Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a rather odd encouragement, and so let's try to unpack that a little bit and understand what in the world is he talking about. Well, in ancient culture, it was very common for groups to fashion an image or a statue of gods and then worship that image. Uh, so, so in the ancient culture, the understanding of an idol was a very real, very physical, very tangible object that they had fashioned together. You'll remember in the Exodus story, they melt down a bunch of gold, they fashion a cow, and they say, oh, this golden calf is in fact our God, and they worship it. And so their understanding is, in fact, this very physical, very tangible thing that they have fashioned uh, and then worship as though it were God. Now, the thing that's important to realize with that is not so much what they fashion, but that they fashioned. You with me? That is to say that when they make an idol, they were in charge of what the idol looked like. That's really important to understand. Now, in my office, I have two icons. I have this icon, which is called Christ the High Priest. I have Christ the High Priest because as I look and I work in my office, it reminds me that Christ has fulfilled the role of priest for us. That in his death, he has represented the love of God to humanity. But he has also represented the brokenness of humanity to God and allowed it to be healed in himself. That the role of the high priest in the Old Testament was to both demonstrate the love and grace and forgiveness of God poured out toward the people. But it was also the role of the high priest to represent the sin and the brokenness of the people to God. The high priest stood as a mediator, he moved in both directions. So I have an icon of Christ as the high priest, recognizing and reminding me that it is Jesus Christ alone who has perfectly fulfilled this role 
as our high priest, but it is, in fact, an icon. I have another icon in my office. It is the icon that is called Jesus the Teacher. He has a circle around his head that says, I am. And then the book that he holds says, I am the light of the world. And I have the icon of Christ, the teacher in my office, because I want to be reminded that Christ is ultimately the best teacher. That as I seek knowledge, as I seek wisdom and understanding, it is Jesus who is the best teacher. Not the commentators, not my own intuition, but rather Jesus Christ is the best teacher. But I also have Christ the teacher in my office because I am a teacher. (laughs) And as a teacher, I want to do my best to teach what Jesus taught. And to pass on his teaching to others and to new generations. To followers of Christ in Fort Collins, Colorado. And so I have two icons of Christ. Now icons have been around a long time. And for a long time, the church debated about whether or not this was allowed. Can we draw up pictures of God? Because it's very, very clear. You shall make no graven images of me, God says in the Old Testament. And so our church fathers and mothers got together and they began talking and deliberating and discerning. And what they finally decided is that it was okay to fashion icons of Christ for one reason and one reason alone. And that is that Christ is the icon of God. You with me? You see where I'm going with this? The early church decided that it was okay to fashion images of Christ because in Christ we have the very image of who God is. In fact, this is precisely what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. And you will never guess this. But the Greek word that we translate image is the Greek word E-I-K-O-N, pronounced icon. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. What? So Paul literally says, Christ is the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. And so when John says in the close of his letter, 1 John, keep yourselves from idols, what he's talking about is that we, what he's saying is resist the temptation to remake the surprising God revealed in Christ in any other image. Remember, because in the ancient culture, what was really important to understand about idols and idolatry was not so much what they made, but that they made it. That they were in charge of what the God looked like. And so when John says, keep yourself from idols, he's saying, you are not in charge of what God looks like. Because we have been given the icon of God in Jesus Christ. Now you hear me talk about this a lot, right? And some of you are like, Pastor Andy's up to his old soapbox again. (laughs) But I have to tell you, there are so many versions of Christian faith that I see all around me where we're worshiping a God that doesn't very much look like Jesus. 
And sometimes we slap a Jesus label on there, but I gotta be honest, then a lot of people look at that and they say, they don't really see the connection between the Jesus revealed in scriptures and the Jesus proclaimed by his people. And so John, into a culture that is used to fashioning idols and and deciding what God can look like out of metals, uh, he says, resist the temptation to remake this surprising God who is revealed in Jesus Christ into any image of your own liking. And i got to be honest, in our culture, we are certainly less prone to fashion physical objects and bow down to them, aren't we? (laughs) Some of you are like, I haven't done that in a long time, maybe never. Right? So it's like, keep yourself from worshiping an idol, and you're like, that was never a temptation to begin with, right? (laughs) So we're less prone to fashion these physical objects, uh, objects and bow down to them, but we certainly have a temptation of remaking God into an image that best serves our purposes. Because here's the problem. You can look to Scripture and get just about any view of God that you want. That is to say that the Bible itself does not always give us a consistent view of who God is. Right? The, the, the Bible itself, if you, if you read it as a static text that just says, oh, God is like this, you could, you, could read, uh, you could read in the Old Testament and some of the earlier narratives of the Old Testament, you say, man, God is really violent and he desires animal sacrifice. But then by the time you get to the, 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 the prophets and the Psalms of David, who says, you do not require sacrifice but you desire a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And then you might say, well, which is it? Right? In other words, if you read the Bible just as sort of this static thing, then you can, you can come up with any image of God that you want. And that presents a big problem, right? I mean, if you want a warrior God who will perpetrate violence to serve his own purposes, or, per- or perhaps your opinion of a divine purpose, then there are plenty of Old Testament stories to give you just that. If you want a warrior God, and a warrior God best serves your purposes, your mindset, the the state of your heart, you can find it in the scriptures. If you want an angry God who requires death to appease his anger, there is plenty in the Bible to support that view. In fact, the issue of animal sacrifices I was just talking about is actually up for debate in the Old Testament itself. Animal sacrifice is up for debate in the Old Testament itself. Uh, The priests and the Levites say animal sacrifice is required, but David challenges that. He gives it a bold-faced challenge in, in Psalm 40 when he says, Sacrifice and offering you do not require. Sin offerings you have not wanted. Right? This is David calling into question what was understood as this, this firm, static, you don't question it kind of truth. And here comes David saying, no, I don't think that's right. (laughs) If you want a God who brings prosperity with obedience, Proverbs says that if you fear God and do what is right, good things will happen to you. But then you also have Job that challenges that with his story of how bad things happen to really good people. 
If you want a God who will elevate you to positions of power, look to the God of Saul or a God of David. If you want a God of rules who loves to punish anyone who disobeys, look to the God of the Pharisees. You see where I'm going? I'm not trying too hard to disrupt, but I'm just saying like, if we are honest as we read the scriptures, then, then our view of God could be all over the place. And, and a lot of times the way we solve this is we just say, we just kind of like grab it all and say God can do what he wants, when he wants, he's God. And I hear this like all the time, his ways are higher than our ways. Which is just like this like really religious like, like back door, <laughs> you know, of like just kind of explaining everything, it's just okay because he's God. Um, some of you are getting really nervous, and that's okay, because I am too. Um, but, but it really begs the question, like, what is God actually like? What is God actually like? And if, and if we aren't careful, I want you to hear me, I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear my pastoral heart here. If we aren't careful, we can bestow divine endorsement on our predetermined opinions of who God is. If we aren't careful, we can bestow divine endorsement on our predetermined concepts of who God is. And and here's the thing, those predetermined concepts often serve selfish endeavors. If you need a God who overcomes evil with violence, you can find him. If you need a God who will appease your guilt of overconsumption, he's fairly easy to find. If you need a God who sanctifies your privilege, it can be done. But the question remains, what is God really like? And the truth is, we need anchors. We need an anchor. We need something to anchor our view of who God is. Otherwise, we are in danger of, in fact, fashioning an idol. And while we may not bring materials together to fashion a, a physical form that, is, that we determine what it looks like, it, it is exactly just as true that, that we can sometimes fashion a picture of God that, that serves our own purposes. And so we need something that anchors our view of God. We need to anchor our view of who God is so that we don't co-opt whichever version of God we find most attractive or best serves our purposes. I want to say that again. We need something to anchor our view of who God is so that we don't co-opt whichever version of God best serves our purposes or we find most attractive. And so I want to submit to you this morning, as your pastor and based on the witnesses of the biblical authors themselves, as they were struggling and wrestling with this, that that anchor is Jesus himself. That Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. That when you you want to know what God is like, all of who God is, you need to look no further than Jesus. And this is good news for the world. This is good news for everybody. This is good news whether you find yourself in a position of privilege or whether you find yourself in a position of the oppressed. And if it's good news, it has to be good news for everybody. And, and listen, some of these different versions of God that we can co-opt and make idols of and, and determine this is the fullness of who God is, it isn't that. 
It is Jesus Christ himself who reveals God. And in fact, we need to look no further than Transfiguration Sunday, (laughs) which is like this Sunday in the church calendar that is just so ignored because pastors are like, what do we do with that, right? It's like one of these, it's that really confusing story where Jesus uh, Jesus is there with some disciples and then up in the sky appears uh, Elijah and Moses and and, uh, someone help me out. Who's the other, who's the third one? Prophet, uh, law, and a, yes, there we go, Isaiah. So they're all, they're all there, and some of you are like, you don't even know this story. I promise, it's a good punchline. <laughs> and, and, and so it's like, they're, they're there, and they represent the law, and they represent the prophets, and, and, then, and then they say, the, the, Peter's there, and he says, we, maybe we should build a tabernacle or a tent for all of these folks to stay. And, and he says, no, don't do that. This is my son. Listen to what he says, which is essentially a way of saying Peter's there and he wants to like fold the message of Jesus into the the prophets and the law and the priests. And and, and Jesus essentially says, no, God says, no, listen to my son. For he, in his teaching, in his voice, rises above and has higher priority than all of those. You with me? Maybe I'll preach about that on Transfiguration Sunday, and it'll be a lot cleaner that time. Because uh, all of that wasn't even in my notes. So, um, but what I want to say to you this morning is that Jesus reveals to us a surprising God. That if we really capture that God is like Jesus, then we ought to be surprised by this God. And not to tell us something about the disposition of God toward you. I see some of you are eager to take notes. And, and so far, you're like, this is all just great stuff, but, but where does it hit my life? Here's where it hits your life. Sometimes our view of God directly affects what we think God thinks about us. And if we have an angry view that God is up there in the clouds or in the sky or somewhere and he's looking and he's he's the God of the Pharisees, he loves rules and he wants to disobey anybody that, that, that he wants to punish anybody, anyone who disobeys, then that really affects how we think God views us. And if we see that God is angry, a lot of times here's what we do is we look and we say, well, God has grace available for you and you and you and those people, but not for me. And so if we, if we really capture the truth that God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ, then we have no question of what God's disposition toward you is. Because God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And it is surprising Because this is a God who is willing to take on the brokenness of his people. This is a God who goes to battle for his people instead of his people going to battle for him. But he goes to battle not by rising up an army or nor calling on on the heavenly armies to, to defeat, but rather he defeats the principalities and powers through death and resurrection. This is a God who has overcome the world through love. A God who has made 
that love perfect and available to us so that that perfect love can cast out all fear. This is a God who prioritizes the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. A God who finds solidarity in the weakness of his people. A God who shows us that darkness is passing away and the light is dawning. A God who welcomes those who are not welcomed and who touches those who are, not, who are considered unclean. A God who offers grace to sinners. <laughs> And the Apostle Paul counted that as good news. Because this man who we revere, who wrote most of our New Testament, in this room would raise his hand and say, Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You see, this becomes a surprising God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And what I want for us as a people, and, and, and quite honestly, part of the theological journey that you all have seen me go on, if you've been here a little while, is to capture more and more of the reality that the fullness of who God is, is revealed in Jesus Christ. As much as I want to hold on to those, those, this, this view of God or that view of God, the more I've come to realize as I've studied Scripture and depended on the Holy Spirit is that if it, does not, if it is not embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, this is not what God is like. And, and, and some, don't we want to hold on to? We want to kind of keep an angry God in our back pocket because sometimes we want God to be angry at other people. We need to keep a violent God in our back pocket because we need sometimes God to carry out violence on other people. And so all along, we're thankful for his grace. We're thankful for his peace toward us. But man, when it's just right, we want him to kind of carry out those, those angry sides on other people. Doggone it, right? <laughs> and and the, more I've, the more I've realized that that... That isn't true to what the biblical authors themselves talk about. That John, Paul, the author of Hebrews, Jesus himself, all bear witness to the fact that the very embodiment of light and love is in Jesus Christ. And John recognizes our temptation to kind of fashion a God into an image that best suits what we want. And so his final line in a letter where he's talked about how God is light and how God is love and his main encouragement is to stay true to this God, right? His, his encouragement from the beginning is do not go with the antichrists and their message, but stay true to the message that you have heard that God is light and God is love. So the purpose of the whole letter is to stay true, stay anchored to that. And in the last two verses, he wants us to know God is like Jesus and stay away from the temptation to remake God into any kind of other image. Because when you do that, you make an idol. And you can hear his pastoral heart, right? I mean, he's in charge of these house churches. 
And so he's not, do not make for yourselves an idol. Doggone it. <laughs> but he's this, dear friends, keep yourselves from idols. You see, his heart is the heart of a pastor. The heart of one who is not trying to coerce, but is trying to direct people into koinonia, a life of light and love, a life of participation in the divine life of God. And so there's almost just whispers in this last pastoral statement of, come on, join the dance. You can do it. Because life is so much fuller when you walk in community with others, share in the divine life of God and the image of God that is centered on Jesus Christ. Are you with me? So, my encouragement to all of us this morning is the same encouragement that John has for his house churches. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Do not remake, do not remake God in any image except the image that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for your love that has been poured out for your life, for your light and love that has been shown to us in Jesus. God, would you forgive us for the times when we do, in fact, remake the image of God into something that doesn't look like Christ. And God, I pray not just for this church, but I pray for the church, the capital C church, the global church, that we would embody Christ in the world. Um, that we as your people would bear witness to the God who is revealed in Jesus. And so God, may the center of our faith be the person of Jesus Christ. May our walk of faith be empowered by the Spirit. May our view of God be centered on Jesus. Help us, God, in all of these endeavors. Help us to know how to work this out in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, as we parent children, as we do all of these things that we do and take up our time and responsibility. God, would you help us to take this truth and, and, and work it out? And that's, that's often hard work, and that's discerning work. And Lord, we need you but would you help us do it? And God, we're thankful for your love and for your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.